Welcome to the Idea Land Podcast, hosted by Ravi Kamati Reddy. Eric and Stephanie have combined veterinary and human medicine to bring science from marine mammals to help us live longer and better lives. Find out what they've learned from dolphins to improve our health and get to know Fatty15. So take me back to where this all started, because it's like the guy who uh, I forgot his name was like the COO or the CEO of AOL. And then it was like, oh, yeah, it's like almost like an overnight success. It's like, yeah, it was a it was a 10 year overnight success. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> These things usually go back a long time right before before it hits the press release. So take me back when a press release wasn't even a part of the equation. Sure, I guess. I was born, just joking, Robbie. Um, so uh, <laughs> uh, I guess go we there. go back. You can go there. To when <laughs> I, uh, you know, I'm a veterinary epidemiologist. I was working for the CDC, the World Health Organization, helping to track, you know, diseases, set up disease surveillance systems all over the world. And then about 20 years ago, I was asked by the U.S. Navy to help start and lead a clinical research program to continually improve the health and welfare of the Navy's dolphins, which, you know, is was fascinating. I thought this would be a, a an amazing you know, year or two off before heading back to, to Atlanta at the CDC. And it ended up being a 20-year journey uh, leading to today. <laughs> and, and so, you know, the discoveries were initially, um, you know, made where the Navy takes incredibly good care of their dolphins. That's a whole right another story, but population of 100 dolphins um, getting amazing care uh, for over the past 60 years. Uh, dolphins now at the Navy live 50% longer than dolphins in the wild. And as yeah. the Navy started um, basically growing a, a population of geriatric dolphins, and long story short, that while taking care of this population, we started to see that as dolphins were getting older, some but not all were developing um, conditions similar to people who get older, chronic inflammation, um, high cholesterol, uh, even the full suite of changes in the brain consistent with Alzheimer's. And so that led to us reaching out to um, experts in the community um, on Alzheimer's, on aging, on um, cholesterol and inflammation. And that then led to just, uh, again, this tremendous um, adventure where not only have we been able to do work to help dolphins and improve dolphin health, but now to improve uh, individual and global health through the discoveries um, we've been making through through this work. And I'll stop there and <laughs> allow her to say. It is, it is actually a really amazing population to study, right? Because they don't have the vices that we have. Right? They're not drinking coffee or, you know. I was going to ask you if they do. Like, do, we, do, they, do they? We just don't know. Like, they got their little dolphin bars and they're like, there's like ones that are selling drugs. It's like, do you yeah. got the seaweed? It's really good. It's For like, sure. a little, you know, yeah. I don't, you know. <laughs> they're with the military, so it's pretty, 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 yeah. pretty strict quarters. Over and and there. so this population, you know, they see their doctor every day. They get routine labs, not when they're sick, but just routine labs. And the Navy yeah. had the foresight to create electronic medical records before pretty much they existed in the human world. And so this is what happens when you treat a population of animals with the best health care. They live 50% longer than those in the wild. And it provides an amazing resource to study the pathophysiology of chronic diseases. Like as Stephanie mentioned, why, if you control for everything, 
do some dolphins get metabolic syndrome and precursors to the diseases Steph mentioned, and some don't. It just changes the understanding of, of disease processes, you know, on its head. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. So can I, can I step back for a second here? And there's a lot of questions about why the Navy has dolphins and those things. But can you so help me solve a paradox, which is, I, it seems like dolphins are big enough to where you really can't make them do anything unless they want to do it. And secondly, they're also not smart enough to sign contracts. So exactly yeah. how are the Navy and you know, the dolphins, how did this partnership start? And what is that partnership like? So put me in the mind of one of the Navy's dolphins. What am I doing all day? How, am I, how is it different other than the, the, this fabulous healthcare system, which you've described, which is, you know, I think Sweden's taking notes right now. It seems, sounds pretty fantastic. But take me through like a day in the life of a Navy dolphin versus one that I would find in the wild. Sure. Happy to answer the question. And I will give the caveat that I'm not representing the Navy, the Navy Marine Mammal Program. <laughs> uh, we're working closely with them, but I um, wanted to uh, provide that caveat. Um, so a day in the life of a Navy dolphin is, is a good day. They live uh, uh, and work in the open ocean every day. They go out, they um, use their skills that they're really good at doing, like finding underwater objects and enemy swimmers, and uh, it's a piece of cake for them. You know, to be honest, dolphins are a very social, intelligent creatures like us, and they have a home kind of setting like us, and they have their family like us. And so for the Navy dolphins, San Diego Bay is their home. Those 100 dolphins, uh, about approximately 100 dolphin population is their family. Uh, to be honest, I think they tolerate a trusted relationship with the humans, but they have right. access to food, healthcare, and heck, I wouldn't, if you see a lot of these wildlife shows, how difficult and, and how much harder the environment is for wild animals these days. They're smart enough to know there's a good thing going um, in their home in San Diego Bay. Yeah, so the... I think they've seen that, right? They're like, wow, Dave Attenborough says it's really hard out there. I think we're going to stay close to the, to the Navy. So that makes sense. And I, and I get this underlying concept of biomimicry. It seems like these populations are similar. We can learn from them. But there are some obvious questions there. And one, one is, how do you know? It just seems like, hey, aren't dolphins and primates so different? on the evolutionary tree so far apart, how do you know that what they go through is stressful in the same way that we do? Because haven't they evolved to thrive in that marine environment for millions of years? So is it okay to generalize what you learn from them? Just from a general species, across species thing, we do this all the time in the lab anyway with, with other mammals. But how, when you entered this, both of you entered this research regime with marine cetaceans, um, how developed was that idea? How open were people to you saying, hey, look, I know we use mice. Let's look at this population. Or did you get a lot of resistance or was there a lot of support or already momentum in the field? You know, I, I think there was, I know, like we know, there was immediate interest in the potential for a dolphin to be a parallel to a human. It was in yeah. no way expected. I mean, even from us. So, you know, we spent probably 10 years, Ravi, um, working with um, experts uh, in the areas in which there were parallels, whether it's metabolic diseases or uh, neurodegenerative diseases and then and liver diseases. 
and then we published in the peer-reviewed literature. So we ended up, there's now over 70 papers that we published to, um, to, that was testing and looking at the parallels between humans and dolphins as we started digging. And it started up at the body level, systemic level of seeing, okay, they get similar changes in liver enzyme levels or in glucose um, or in yeah. uh, cholesterol that mimics metabolic syndrome in people. Then we went down to the tissue level to look at, for example, the liver, and lo and behold, dolphins get fatty liver disease that looks just like those in humans. And as we, um, it was really by working with these experts that we started with the null hypothesis that these parallels were probably superficial and wouldn't translate. But as we dug deeper and deeper and continued to publish in the peer-reviewed literature, it became more and more real to the point where as we started making these discoveries, um, we were able to show things like, or and as well as others like Illumina, were able to show um, really fascinating parallels between humans and dolphins. Like dolphins and humans have the largest um, brain to body ratio of any other species, even compared to primates. Uh, so if we talk about glucose metabolism needs to help meet the needs in the brain, check, humans and bottlenose dolphins specifically have parallels. Fatty liver disease, like we said, ends up being um, incredibly exactly the same pathology in the liver. Um, the human chromosome one, our largest chromosome, um, which is human, could call it human chromosome one, um, ends up having almost exact same synteny, which means not just the same genes, but the same order of genes with only a handful of species, which are bottlenose dolphins, uh, great apes, and the two-toed sloth. So. Evolution, absolutely, you're right, Robbie, that dolphins and humans are not close evolutionarily, but it looks like they have followed parallel paths with regard to if I have a large brain and I'm a large mammal who lives a long time, they've co-evolved um, similar adaptations, uh, which is which has led to its ability to translate. Yeah, Robbie, it's a good question because you know why, you know why, what's the difference between mice, worms, and flies, and you know studying long-lived yeah. populations, and so a lot of that, as Steph mentioned, is that the physiologic processes, you know, are just different. Longer-lived animals need different processes to live longer, and so studying longer-lived animals mm -hmm. has benefits. Yeah, and and we'll just pause at that because then you know then we move on to actually say okay, let's take it to the lab and really put it to the test. What did it feel like when you this this pond actually is intended? You almost it was a fishing expedition in the beginning, right? Um, and you're looking for these correlates of, or you're trying to do the regression analysis to see what is it about the members of this population that are making them live longer or be healthier. Um, what was it? What was it like? What did you find when you initially did that? And what did it feel like when you actually found signal in the noise? Um, so yeah, it, it, it initially, it, or I just start by saying we are incredibly gifted, right, with access to this population. It all started and continues to um, have a focus on improving baby dolphin health, right? And I think that that has had a big role in what has made it so translatable. So it's not we're working on a research model and seeing if it can translate. We're actually trying to see the benefit, you know, in this population first, and then translate it to humans. So as we saw these similarities in cholesterol and inflammation and liver enzymes, we, um, you know, started to we were able to do so because these dolphins, like Eric shared, are um, we have longitudinal samples, so 25 to 30 to 50 years of data 
every month from every dolphin in that population, so over their lifetimes. So that allowed us to detect trends. And so the paper that um, we published with Nick Shork, a leader in longevity last year in PNAS, this enabled us to dive in, I'll use my own puns as well, <laughs> so to dive in and be able to um, basically you look at this trends analysis in a very clean population um, over you know, 25, 30 years to not only show um, that some dolphins were aging faster than others, which is always what we believed in people. Like, but we're always saying, oh, it's the environment's different. It's that if you put everybody in the same population and they had the same diet for their whole life and the same health care, the question, would we all age the same? So through this paper, um, and that was a huge aha moment, where despite the fact that these dolphins were living in the same population, same diet, same healthcare, we identified, it's identified slow versus accelerated aging dolphins. Aha, right? And so now we're able to go in and figure out why target um, slow aging dolphins to then make, uh, target slow aging dolphins so that we could turn an accelerated aging dolphin into slow aging dolphin. The implications for that are huge, right? If we can slow down the aging rate, we can stem chronic diseases like type two diabetes and heart disease and Alzheimer's. So that that was a huge aha moment for us. And now to have these molecules translating in the in the human side is 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 really exciting. Yeah, and the ability to predict aging and your rate of aging is something that you could potentially only do in a population that's this clean, right? And so, you know, yeah. in, what we found, and it's in the paper Steph mentioned, is that using normal labs that you would get in a five-year physical can be predictive of whether you're a slow or fast ager, which is pretty amazing. And so that was a moment. It just one more is, you know, we, we use omics, multi-omics, metabolomics, lipidomics, genomics, all that, um, on these samples. And so, you know, we had a diet study looking at the metabolome, and, you know, when we sent the metabolome out, it came back, and the people uh, are like, how did you get such clean data? Because mm -hmm. the top 30 molecules were 100% predictive of which group got which diet which they had never seen before. So they were blown away. And this is a major metabolomics company. So it's just an example of you know, the, the cleanliness of the data. Eric, as a, as a physician, as a medical doctor who's used to seeing humans, was it you know, weird to see like the same labs that we order on people <laughs> or track these things yeah. on a population that, you know, of, of marine mammals? How, what was that like just coming into this from the background training of, of human medicine? Right. You, you get used to it, but it is weird. You know, I, I trained at Naval Medical Center San Diego and seeing a dolphin coming down the hallway to the CT scanner is not, you know, normal in most hospitals. <laughs> but, uh, you know, they have dolphins, they have different animals coming through that they care for and you get used to it. And, you know, you look at labs and x-rays and things like that. And, you know, they're the same principles. Uh, that you're treating them with, it's just sometimes a little of a shock. That is not a human foot, you know, or something. That's a flipper, you know, or something of that nature. So, you know, from that standpoint, it's very different. It's, it's exciting. But from the healthcare standpoint, the parallels are pretty amazing. Even if you look at some of the labs we're talking about, you know, CBCs, chemistries, lipid panel, you know, all that, they're remarkably similar. Dolphins are pretty active every day. I'm just I'm just concentrating on this because I really want to understand the animal model 
here and sort of put the rest of it in context. What are the important differences between how humans are living, I would say, in the Western world, like let's just say the United States for now, because obviously there's variation. So what's different that we should be aware of that we, you know, so that we know the boundaries maybe of the conclusions that can be drawn? So how are our populations different? Obviously, there's the water aspect of it, the environment, but um, how do we differ? What are they better at than us? Um, oh boy, that's a whole other podcast. The dolphins are better than us. So many things. So <laughs> I'm dolphin, co- dolphin co-host for that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but so yeah, so dolphins are different because all they eat are fish for the most part, right? There's not this variety of, um, especially if we're talking the the Western world, right? Um, so um, all they eat are fish. They exercise, so they're always moving, right? And so they're they're fit animals. Um, you don't have a, an issue with regard to obese dolphins sitting on the couch um, and eating unhealthy food. Um, and so, and while humans, right, completely different, so much differences in environment, in diet, in genetics. And so, on first glance, it's almost like you know, Robbie, kind of what you're getting to is how could these possibly be comparable? And so, those are really important differences. Where um, kind of the rubber hits the, the road with the science is that it ends up that what appeared initially to be very different opened up um, an avenue to understand a, a critical insight into, into humans. And so, and so I'll, I'll lay that one out real quick um, so that I can, I can back up what I'm saying. And so... Yeah, Let's, I have to get to C15, okay, right, of course, which is odd chain saturated yeah. fatty acid um, that uh, we've discovered and proposed um, with Ed Dennis, an expert in lipids, um, in scientific reports in 2020, that C15 is the third essential fatty acid to be discovered in 90 years. So we discovered that by noticing that healthy aging dolphins had higher levels of C15 in their blood compared to... Um, poor aging dolphins. And it ends up that the dolphins that had higher C15 were getting more C15 from their diet. So not all fish have C15, some have it and some don't. And the dolphins that were getting more fish with more C15 in it were healthier. So we did a study, which uh, Eric had mentioned, where then we gave poor aging dolphins a fish diet that had higher C15 in it. And those dolphins, the aging-related conditions like high glucose, high insulin, high cholesterol, were alleviated. So, okay, interesting for dolphins. (laughs) Meanwhile, um, and it ends up, long story short, that um, the the dolphins had been accidentally fed or unintentionally fed a diet that was low in C15. We didn't even know to look for C15 before. And when you fix those C15 levels, the dolphins get better. So, um, you know, move forward to, or move on to the human populations. When we look at C15, C15 can come from fish, but our primary source of it is actually dairy fat and butter. And so when we look at, while the dolphins for about 30 to 40 years have been receiving a a C15 deficient diet, which in part is also being attributed to climate change because fish are getting less fat. Less fat means less C15. So anyway, warming of the ocean, uh, less fat in the fish. Bigger, bigger problem there. And so for the human side, you know, about the same time the Navy dolphins were getting less C15 through their fish, 
we as humans were greatly decreasing our C15 because we started cutting out milk fat, right? And so less, no butter, okay. no whole fat milk. I grew up on blue milk and margarine and we were all told don't eat saturated fats. And so C15 is a trace saturated fat. So we um, decreased that amount in our populations and now um, study after study, 19 studies in 2021 alone from other folks, including Harvard and Hopkins and Cambridge, all showing that people who have higher C15 levels in their blood have a lower risk of type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome, cardiovascular disease, heart failure, and even mortality. So even though these models were very different, it ends up that the, the dolphins have served as kind of like a, a finding what molecules in our body are important is kind of like finding a needle in a needle stack because it's so clean. And when we pick out those molecules, we found about 100 of them to date. We picked out that first one, C15, and it only took, you know, it didn't take a lot to then translate that to how that relates in humans. That was a long answer. Don't, but that's a really interesting um point there because it took a lot of work and I just want to stress this because I know that both of you obviously know that it took a lot of work but for everyone else listening who is thinking about this startup story and what it takes to actually take something and translate it from bench research with the complicated settings and to get it to where you can see signal like that were there any times where both of you just thought this is a dead end this is not going to work um and if there were, could you talk about those? How did you both get through those times? There's a there's a lot of moments like that. You know, this, this molecule you know, had had not been proposed or discovered as a central molecule, right? And so, if you're going to bring something like that to market, I mean, you know, it's there's a lot to be done. Even from it didn't, you, no one manufactured it. And so we had to create a process and scale up that process to multiple tons. It takes a long time. And then, you know, from the intellectual property standpoint, you know, if we were going to put this investment in, probably good to have some kind of intellectual property, uh, I think it just went down here, um, uh, backing. And so we spent a lot of time working with Navy and with the tech transfer office and with IP attorneys um, to secure some of that IP. And so those are just two examples of... You know the, the different things that you have to do to t translate a discovery into actually a product, and that's not even talking about the scientific, you know, work that needs to be done from discovery um, to the point where you can have something available for people to actually ingest. Yeah, and, and Rob, you can imagine the two of us walking into a room of venture capitalists and who nobody knows, right? I've never heard of the Ben Watsons before. It's a veterinarian and a physician, their military family <laughs> coming in and we're pitching, hey, we think we've discovered the first essential fatty acid in 90 years. Oh, by the way, it's a saturated fat. And oh, by the way, we discovered it in dolphins, right? And so, Always, like in the, since the beginning, it's been an interesting story, but, get to, but to get to the point where it's like, oh, this is real. And if you're talking about you just discovered the next Omega-3, you know, that took years. And the most important aspect of it, even though initial skepticism on the science front, which then we brought them in, learned from them, and, and was it able to grow the science and the credibility, um, but the ability to... Um, 
basically the science always landed. So what kept us going was that we would have um, a skeptic come in and say, well, if this was true, then if you did this, X, you would get Y. We're like, oh, okay. So we would raise money from friends and family and do X. And we're like, oh, hey, here's Y. What should we do next? And so that it took five years of doing of those iterations that then led like to this paper in scientific reports, there are eight studies, all eight studies that we did to kind of answer those key questions, we held on to, waited until they all resulted in where they should have landed. And only then, because the science supported it, did we say, yeah, we're ready to start telling the world that a saturated fat is good for them. So, and we even got to the point where the science, um, our advisors said, hey, we, this has now moved from exciting research to a moral obligation, Steph and Eric, <laughs> to bring this to the world. So that's what kept us going, was really the, the validity and credibility of the science to the point where now we have an opportunity to truly improve global health, and now we, we just can't not do it. <laughs> that makes sense. That does make sense. And what's, what's interesting to me is well, a couple of things, but but for sure, this is just a great story for health and human medicine, and obviously zoology and the care of these dolphins. But it's such a great example of the scientific process. This this kind of gradual accumulation of evidence, uh, addressing the naysayers head on, instead of instead of ignoring the objections or you know what about isms, uh, and you guys both did that, and I'm sure with the with the team as well. And being able to land and convert those people into advocates for what you're doing instead of, uh, you know, skepticism. And skepticism is something that is tricky, right? Because, I mean, it's required to make great things, great products, but also great, you know, great research and findings. I, I do want to turn back or, or go back just to one thing, just to some baseline knowledge. As a, as a medical doctor, you know, we're trained, even when I was in med school, uh, Eric, I don't know, tell me if this was true for you, too. The saturated fat, the story behind how we view fat. Can you talk about, um, you know, do you think that story, what that story was, and if you both think that that story needs to be changed, uh, given um, your findings and, and how you're approaching the problem of cardiometabolic disease with things yes. like C15? <laughs> and I agree, you know, in during training, and I think just in general, the still the perception is that, you know, fats are, are not great for us, right? And I think that perception of fats in general is starting to change, and people are starting to realize that, hey, not all fats are vilified. However, you know, there's still a bucket, saturated fats, that are still vilified. And so, you know, our goal here and our findings support that you can't bucket that class of molecules all as, you know, bad for your health. There are some that are bad, and there are some are good, and there are some that are even essential for your health. Like, meaning your body cannot make C15, you know, you need to get it from your diet, or you have less good health you know, illness, things like that. And so I, I think that's changing, Robbie. Um, you know, we're, we're at the tip of the sphere pushing the, 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 the science around the nutrition and, you know, what we should be eating with regards to saturated fats. But the world is, the world is catching up, and I think medical training is catching up as well. And I, I think we're at a pivotal point of understanding which micro, the importance of micronutrients to our diet. Yeah, and, and it's and when you, um, yeah. and and I and I'll show, you know we're not alone, which has been amazing during 2021. What has happened? We put out this paper in 2020, 
saying, hey, is, is C15 not only a healthy saturated fat, what's called these odd chain saturated fats versus even chain, which continue to be associated with poor health, whether or not they're the cause, I think is now that even that's under debate. But these odd chain saturated fatty acids, when we, we put the paper out, not only as beneficial, whoops, world, sorry, like, sorry that such, we took them all away from you, um, but that it may in fact be essential which means, you know, has led to the hypothesis that C15 nutritional deficiencies are actually the drivers of cardiometabolic diseases, the very diseases we're trying to prevent by taking whole fat, you know, whole fat uh, milk and butter away. So we're not alone. The, in 2021 alone, there have been multiple calls to action um, from leaders in the um, food and ingredient industry, from the nutrition communities, saying we need to take a closer look at C15, at these odd chain saturated fatty acids. It was a cover of the magazine um, Inform, which no, is not sitting next to Vogue uh, in the, in the, news, in the uh, magazine stores, but it's a trade journal around experts um, and people working in nutritional lipids. So, um, and then on top of that, like I shared, you know, at least a 19 um, peer-reviewed publications coming from all these different research, independent research groups throughout the world, all showing C15 is beneficial. So it's super exciting to see this momentum happen. I, I don't think it's gonna be much longer before this gets brought, you know, um, in front of, you know, the, to help drive and adapt um, recommendations. Pediatricians today are are told to tell every parent of every two-year-old that it's time for them to come off whole fat milk, regardless of their health. If indeed this ends up being um, where we don't want to drive C15 deficiencies to create these diseases in younger, younger people, you know, to, to be able to help be part of um, responsibly evaluating that change uh, is is very meaningful to us. And do you feel like this needs to be a part of like the panel in a yearly physical type thing? Are you are you both imagining that this just needs to be something that we need to be checking in the same way that we check routine, quote unquote, routine labs? This needs to be routine because it seems like, am I right in saying it's easily fixable in terms of its levels? I mean, it's something that you can, if you don't have enough of it, it's okay, we can supplement it. So uh, maybe a parallel would be vitamin D and how we're approaching vitamin D supplementation these days versus how we used to think about it and how it's probably driving to some significant portion of the population some real symptoms. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good point. I think it's going to come in stages, right? So currently, five-year physicals, we get our CBC, our chemistry, our lipid panel, the LFTs, things like that. And so you can see some of the effects of being deficient in those. You may be more anemic. Your LFTs may be high. Your cholesterol panel is elevated. And then, you know, having C15 back in your diet, you may know improvements in that. So that's phase one. And then phase two, exactly. There may be a time where we want to get a fatty acid panel and have different fatty acids, including C15, as part of that panel. You know, if you look at like more and more people are getting omega-3 values or, you know, or vitamin D, as you mentioned. I mean, those things after they're determined to be beneficial, then generally we want to test for those things. Um, and so that may be, that may be happening down the road. So speaking of down the road, it seems like, you know, am I right in saying that you guys have built a bridge between dolphins and humans? I'm sure it's not stopping at this one molecule. Can you talk about how do we view kind of ongoing research and what are you both up to with this relationship that you've established now? Or I hate to say animal model because I don't want to degrade 
on dolphins, but you know we're all animals here. But how do you approach this going forward? Is this the beginning of many things that are yet to come? Yeah, absolutely. It's the beginning um, of many, many, <laughs> many more things to come. Um, we uh, so through the metabolomics, um, we work and looking at being able to, if you can imagine, right? If not only do you have uh, the ability to look at hundreds or thousands of small molecules um, in a long-lived large-brained mammal throughout its entire lifetime, but you could then match that against all the CBC and serum chemistry values throughout their life, as well as outcomes, like did they get or not get Alzheimer's disease? Did they get or not get fatty liver disease, inflammation, high cholesterol? So we have all these amazing and relevant endpoints matched with the technology that's readily available today we actually just finished um, doing uh, genome sequencing on the whole population, which is really exciting. Um, so stay tuned for, for out, outputs from that. But what we've done, what we've been able to do is uh, now identify 200 small molecules in the dolphins that, um, is, that uh, appear to be predictive against a very variety of conditions. It might be Alzheimer's or liver disease or metabolic syndrome or just accelerated aging. So we're started with molecule one, our baby with C15. Uh, we have um, Department of Defense funding uh, to be able to, in which we're currently advancing um, three more of the molecules in that pipeline. We're also taking the natural molecules um, and working with them in the lab to create analogs, um, which is more of our drug development pipeline. So that once we find out how the small molecules work, we could then adapt them um, and analog them to better target specific receptors that uh, are more focused on specific drug treating properties. So we have uh, funding from the Army too, in which we're pursuing one of those um, for idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. So lots to come. Yeah, I want to I talk about the moral obligation, right? So, you know, this it is it is important for us to you know be able to take these discoveries and translate them to you know molecules that can improve human health both on a natural um, standpoint natural molecules that can be supplements or uh, food ingredients and on the pharmaceutical side and so you know we have shown that there are benefits to looking at a model like Stephanie mentioned a long-lived big-brained animal that doesn't smoke drink and do all the things that we and is monitored on a daily basis and so that platform's in place um, and now it's time to you know really figure out like why do some dolphins get Alzheimer's some don't well same in humans what is that and so this do they get Alzheimer's type they do yeah, which is amazing because there's only, you know, this is not my expertise, but there's only a few models that naturally get Alzheimer's and dolphins being one of them, uh, primates, humans, things like that. And so that surprises to, me. Right. Yeah. Right. Isn't exactly. that? And so uh, Oxford University published that. Uh, two or three years ago, it, we were actually uh, already had our whole own Alzheimer's discovery program well underway. We're, we're matching metabolomes with um, histology outcomes um, from the dolphins that have passed. They have what's called a brainery. So we were able to tap into mm -hmm. there and, and be able to, to, to tie specific histology and severity of disease to um, metabolomes. 
Yeah, and, and for instance, that's a good example. Another good example is NASH, you know, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, hepatitis, right? Liver diseases. And so currently there's no cure, and it's it's getting worse, right? One of every, you know, four people in the U.S. has NAFLD, or, you know, the beginnings of this process. One in ten kids are starting to have fatty liver disease, NAFLD. I, I think and it's so, going to be one of the leading causes of liver transplant pretty soon. Yeah, I don't think it is now, but it probably will be. Yeah. yeah. And so we have this incredible opportunity um, because, you know, this is a natural molecule that gets metabolic syndrome and the precursors and NAFLD and things like that to study how that happens, um, you know, clear of all the other things we do, and then to be able to turn those discoveries into therapeutics for that. And we actually did a lot of work with a molecule and some analogs uh, for NASH and have some pretty incredible results. And as a veterinarian, then I have to also, I love the full circle. Um, I've been been dedicated, we've been dedicated to public health and individual health, but it's been so nice that all of these discoveries, Ravi, are coming back to the dolphins. So the dolphins, maybe dolphins are set um, for this, uh, actually be 2022 to start getting their C15 supplementation as part of their their routine healthcare. Oh, that's amazing. Okay, so I I mean I'm very impressed with because because I'm just forgetting about the dolphins. I'm so biased amongst to humans because I'm a human physician. <laughs> but you're right, the dolphins do need to be paid back for their incredible contributions that's here. Right. And I feel like they're really not getting. So are they are they are they stakeholder? I mean, do they have equity in in the <laughs> yeah, uh, startup yeah. or are you like, like co-founders? Yeah. Do you have like a liaison that you talk to that just is like the one dolphin is like I'll take care of the negotiation. You deal with me. I'll deal with the rest of my team. But, I don't know. Yeah. If, we, if we get to the point where we understand their language, they, they would probably outsmart us in those in, in negotiations, Robbie. So. <laughs> I do have to bring up one just uh, tangential thing here and to get your – what is it with cetaceans? Obviously, they live in the complicated – they have complicated social relationships, which probably has a lot to do with how they evolved to have a lot of cognitive processing. In addition to – I mean, I'm, I'm – Preach to the choir. Um, there's other things that they can do that really uh, that are pretty amazing. But you know, like bowhead whales too. This what is this association with longevity and the marine mammals? You know, what is what are they doing that we're not doing? Is is a question when I when I first read and researched that bowhead whale situation ten years ago, I was like, I can't believe that. I mean, how is that possible that they're finding harpoon tips? You know, that are dated to be around 180 years old. You know, and why don't they get the same diseases? So I was kind of surprised when you said um, the dolphins do get them. So it's like they're not magic. They they do have systems that that we have, and they do get Alzheimer's. They do get um, uh, hyperlipidemia or you know lipid problems. Um, so that's interesting. Um, can we talk about? Can you both talk about what what it was like to now you're sitting on incredible research. You've taken on the naysayers. You've convinced them, like, we have something here that's real. And you're now in front of investors, and you've convinced them, too. And you've got backing now from not just them, but also from the institution of the Navy, which is huge, uh, and the the Department of Defense. So what's the next step, and what was it like uh, turning that into an operational process to, Eric, like you were saying, like, I I just, you don't think of the word tons when you think of small molecules, but that's what you really have to do is to make tons of, you know, they're like, cool, this is great. Like, how many tons do you have this week? You're like, what? Oh, I have to ship this to people. That that, that is measured in tons. So what was it like to do, to, to go from the science background that you all have, the medical background? And I know, Eric, you have a business background as well and have been involved in startups. Could you talk about that process? Yeah, uh, these are these are big questions, right? Is you know, <laughs> when are you ready? If 
<laughs> are you going to be ready? When are you ready? And what's it going to look like to bring this you know, molecule to the world? And I, I will say that we started working with um, Kim Kamdar from Domain, one of the big VCs here, and she just was awesome. And so we met with her and Nick Shork, one of the leaders in the world in longevity, once a week, every week for three years, mm -hmm. three years. And so there was a lot of whiteboarding sessions and a lot of, you know, let's make sure that as we roll this out, we have the science, the, you know, the structure in place um, to where if we're going to bring this to the market, we're going to do it in a way that is, you know, safe, efficacious, uh, scalable, you know, protectable, all that kind of stuff. And so after a couple years of meeting, we decided, okay, let's form an entity. And that was Serafina Therapeutics. Transfer the appropriate IP into that, take on VC funding, and then you know work on the strategy that we had put in place of okay, manufacturing, supply chain, you know, intellectual property, branding, branding. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I mean, just so many stories that that uh, from. What was there the on, hardest? What was the hardest part of that? What was the one that you? Well, let me ask you both yeah. both questions. What was easier than you thought it was going to be? Yeah, you know, and what was harder than you expected it to be? Yeah, there's a there's a leap of faith to go from you know in a scientific discovery that has incredible data to an actual product, and that big leap of faith is you need money to be able to do those things, uh, and so what order, how much, all that kind of thing, and it's you know that's a scary jump, and so you know we worked with a, like a branding agency you know that was going to help us create the name and the packaging and those kind of conversations are are fun but you know anxiety provoking we want to name this you want to name this fatty 15 you know which is that's kind of a my nickname in freshman year in college by the way <laughs> right exactly and 15 for 15 yeah. carbons fatty for, and the point was you know at first when when they said we're going to name it that or you know think about naming it we said no way no way. But then we had a four-hour discussion on what why the why did, why were you guys so opposed to it when that that name came up? Exactly what you said. I mean, this the connotation around this name is negative. You know, around fatty and fats. And so, but that's the whole point is we're trying to change that. And so we determined after many hours of negotiating this to come up with a name that would get people talking about this. And, you know, it's really interesting, you know, just to fast forward it once, um, you know, we put this out there and then we were kind of, we didn't know how the public was going to respond. And we still get a few people saying, oh, Fatty 15, that, you know, I don't like that name. But in general, most people like the name. And then if they come back to questions and we say why we named it that, it's to get people talking about saturated fats, that they're not all bad for you, some are good, and kind of change this perception of these molecules. People come back and they say, thank you. And so it's been a really interesting, a name has a lot of power. And so there was a lot of discussion on that, as there were every other you know, segment of what you need to bring a product to market. What was easier than you thought it was going to be? What were you nervous, what were you both nervous about possibly or anxious about that ended up being, oh, okay, that was not as bad as I thought? Yeah, I mean, I... Doing what we're doing, Robbie, as Serafina, so you know, EpiTracker is the parent company working with the Navy with the Dolphins. We spun out Serafina. Our assumption is Serafina will get funded. The real folks will step in, <laughs> lead this company, and, and help improve global health with it. And you know, I, I think some of the surprise that that we are are finally coming to understand, and it's different than the pharma world, where you know most of our 
where we've really kind of done most of our, our training in the startup world, but um, is that, uh, you know, Eric and I today, we are the brand, we are the science and we're the co-founders and especially with a consumer driven product, that means so much to uh, this, the, the chances of success of a product, right? If, if, as we're talking here with you, you know, it's in, in our enthusiasm behind it, the depth of the science behind it, as a physician, as a veterinarian, going through the whole experience of the branding, I won't call it easy, but it's been surprising to say, like, you can s step into these roles as CEO and COO that even though it's, it's right now, you know, driven toward a supplement um, driven company with food ingredients and a pharma potential that, you know, for now, for this exciting stage of growth, that we keep realizing, yeah, this is it. So we're stepping up and doing doing all the fun parts and it's so much more fun than I ever imagined. I have to tell you, I had a bias against the supplement world, uh, didn't know how to handle the consumer world and how to you have ads so, to customers though. What know? was the bias? What was your bias toward the supplement world? Yeah, I mean, it's it's it kind of gets to your other question of what's been difficult. Um, so yeah. we were going to put C15 out as a, as a drug. We were, we were doing the studies and all of these things to be able to, to enable physicians to have a safe product that they could give to their patients along with other medications that could have these benefits. When COVID happened, um, no clinical trials, right? And so we're like, we're going to be who knows how long without being able to do a clinical trial. Meanwhile, we had all this great science, the discovery of it as an essential fatty acid, and along with our advisor said, this needs to be a supplement. Like this needs to have better access. The world needs to have better access to it than just as a prescription drug. So in part because of COVID, we pivoted and said, let's go all in with the supplement. Let, let's do it. Let's get it out. So we have the safety data. We have everything that we needed because we were preparing for much more stringent right, rules and yeah. testing as a drug. So it was like over-prepared for the supplement market. And so the challenge has been, goes with your other question, skepticism, you know, the supplement market is not well, it's regulated for safety, not for efficacy. Uh, claims can be made that aren't backed. Um, there are, you know, we see paper after paper of they went in, people go in and they test what's in the, in the supplement, what's there isn't there, and what is there isn't what people thought was there. And so yeah. it has earned tons of skepticism. And then we're thinking, we're going to step into this, <laughs> like yeah. high science, rigorous, high ethics. And so what we're doing now is really working to raise the bar on the supplement industry because we have the ability to really bring with metabolomics and all these discoveries made by us and others is just a whole new golden age of nutrition and supplements that I, we are seeing customers and consumers um, hungry for the science, hungry for, for the, so that there will be a natural rising to the top of those of us who are being responsible um, and efficacy and data-based and, and those kind of more in the riffraff. Yeah, and responsible yeah. is not inexpensive in, in this case. You know, we, for instance, you know, our ingredient, you know, we created a way to scale it up that was, you know, non, 
animal sourced. It was, you know, from a, a plant-based ingredient that is not something that is, you know, cutting down forests, things like that. That's very sustainable. Um, the molecule we have now is the last batch was 99.8% pure, you know, C15, which, you know, from a supplement standpoint, you know, is, is rare, right? And so um, because it's the molecule the way it is, we don't use any fillers or anything like that. So when people are getting, you know, C15 from us, it is almost 100% pure with no fillers, no nothing. And that is, it's just the ingredient. And that's pretty uncommon in this world. But it was something that was important to us to have the highest quality ingredient in the most bioavailable form that we could get to the world. Yeah, I tend to, that's amazing. And that's like a lot of work to get there. So congrats and hats off to that, that dedication to the, to the, just the ethics of just standing by what you what what the label says on the side of the, the box. I agree with both of you. I, I I agree. It's like there's so many supplements that probably do work, but it's hard to see, to sort out what's real, and what's not, and like you know, uh, it's it's kind of crazy. It feels like there needs to be, I don't want to say regulation, but at least some kind of like a seal of approval or of some sorts that just like some industry insiders can say, look, we've just this has got an extra level of scrutiny and we're just more sure that it does something. I was so against supplements. I have the same bias as a medical doctor because we're just like, oh, they didn't go through the actual testing. But then when you look through, you know, of course we have testing and lots of stuff, but you know, I have a related question to this, but it's how do you explain this this concept of levels of evidence? But yeah, because when I when I have patients sometimes I'm like, well, there's things I'm sure about and then there's things that I think are a good idea. So like when you're testing on a child, for example, you're like, well, I'm not going to do a randomized clinical control trial on not using Tylenol for a, a, versus you know one group where you do use Tylenol for a fever of 105. And another, you're like, I just think it's a good idea. So we'll just go with that. Right. And then there's like, you know, for adults, we're like, well, there's lots of things that we think are good ideas that don't turn out to pan out because the human body is so much more complicated with all the ways it interacts. But explaining that is a challenge. And, you know, Eric, I, I start with you on this. I mean, as a, as a physician you, who's bridging knowledge to people, and then, Steph, both you as well, it's like, okay, now there's dolphin knowledge I've got to bridge to people. <laughs> How in a consumer market, yeah. right, do you explain all these concepts in a way that doesn't have to come with a 30-page <laughs> font size 4 FDA insert, right? right. <laughs> you know? So how do you get yeah. this across? Hey, it comes from dolphins. There's ones that age differently. There's, you know, how is that process? Do people, and do people seem to understand it? Are they getting it? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not easy. I mean, you know, this, 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 there's a lot of skepticism. So how do you get through that? One is there's different proof points, right? So ours is a new dietary ingredient. We got grass status, which is, you know, basically the ability to use this as a food ingredient that requires a lot of talk studies and, you know, looking at different populations and giving populations a, a very large doses to see if there's anything that would be toxic or, you know, potentially bad for people. So, you know, a lot of supplements don't do that. We took it up, you know, a few notches to be able to do that. And so, you know, one of the things that is nice about this molecule, for instance, like omega-3s, right? So as physicians, you know, often we will um, prescribe, you know, or have people take omega-3s because it's one of the safe medications you can take with the statin or, you know, you don't have to worry so much about the polypharmacy. So, you know, a molecule that's safe and efficacious that can be used with, you know, different uh, medications um, that doesn't have the complications of, you know, worrying about side effects with polypharmacy is something that the world needs, you know, and something that's yeah. seen as very valuable. So, you know, doing those studies and showing you have a safe molecule with efficacious um, gives you a lot of uh, proof 
that then the challenge is how do you translate that into you know a consumer product and how do you get that information out and so the way we've done that with with this molecule is after you know people you know we put it on the website we you know we have a great community people are talking about it and after you become a customer of ours you get an onboarding email series that says What's happening to your body at day one? What's happening at day five? And then not only that, but hey, if you want to read more, here's the study. Read our nature paper. Read the one that just came out from Harvard, you know, and that kind of thing. So people generally have been pretty pleased with that onboarding and have been amazingly into the science. And so that's just one of the ways where we're conveying, you know, the importance of this molecule and the, the benefits to your body. Do you think that's interesting that, especially in the time of COVID, when there's differing views on, I mean, you can see different approaches to how public officials treat the quote unquote lay public. And it seems to be like, it always seems to end up where it's like, if you don't talk down to people, give them the opportunity to look at the data or to, they really appreciate it. There seems to be a genuine appreciation for giving people the information and not cramming it down their throats, but letting them feel like, Hey, they're making a decision. For their best interests. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, this is a great point because you know, natural molecules, the supplement world, you're not allowed to talk about disease and treating disease. You know, however, we have this molecule that's right in the middle of pharma and natural products. So how do we convey that? Because people want to learn about it, and so we actually use a law firm in everything you know that we put out there to make sure that we're doing it appropriately. So when we have an advertisement or something like that going on, we want to link directly to the paper that shows, hey, you know, people live longer taking C15, or it's good for your whatever cardiovascular health things like that. But you can't, so you have to go either you know click through a neutral page to the article, or you have to put that data someplace else and say, hey, if you want to read more about that, go here. So one of the ways we found that's good is we link to a blog article that we wrote, uh, you know, giving a summary that's not disease you know, specific, and then if you want to read more, click here. So now there's two clicks. And that, from the FDA standpoint, is you know kind of the, the gold standard of how to do this. But the, the answer to your question is it's tough because you can't just say, here you go. Here's the data. Read about it. Do you feel like this needs to, is, is this something on the agenda for us to change in the future as a generation of people who are – I'm in the same area, right, with where it's like health coaching and basically health behavior change, like exercise. Will we – Technically, what is true is that exercise is a foundational form of therapy for the diseases to prevent them and also in some cases to mitigate the effects. And is it, are we, are we doing ourselves as a culture a disservice by not admitting that? Because do we, is, is there reform coming or that needs to be pushed forward at a policy level to, to let bona fide evidence-based things like what you're creating have their own pathway where you can be honest about the results and what those effects are? Is that something that is really, because it seems like from what, when you're talking about, it, that's been almost as hard to navigate as the actual dolphins. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think consumers are driving this, which is great right? because we're all consumers and we all are aging and we all want to be healthy for as long as we can. And so and you guys look very young. I I'm Asian, which means I'll, I age, I age in a staccato. <laughs> Like I just, I look really young as an Indian male till I'm like 68. And then all of a sudden within a year, I just gained 10 years and I, so I have a kyphotic spine. Seven, yeah, yeah. So you're 82. Yeah, it's, <laughs> um, yeah, it's different. 
So I, I, I think I do think consumers are driving it. I think just as importantly, um, people like yourself and Eric, right? That physicians are driving it. Um, you, you, we're seeing increasingly in medical conferences, um, especially the cutting edge ones, that you're starting to see sessions on nutrition. And we tested this diet and intermittent fasting, and there's discussions about drugs, but increasingly discussions about non-drug, you know, ways that are. Um, in which the evidence is building that this helps. I mean, exercises, obviously, and, and good sleep um, and a good diet are all these, these core parts, but then there's a way to kind of dive in which part of the diet and what types of exercise and how long that people are, not only are they ready to accept, if you provide and show that you have some depth and some science behind it, um, they're, you know, I think, both, um, you know, we're enabling ourselves as as adults to read the internet <laughs> and for better or worse and make decisions about our, our life and health, um, but including taking supplements. Um, and we're going to our physicians less. Um, I'm not sure that's that's for the better. But, um, you know, I, I think the world is, is, like you're saying, Rob, is opening up to it's more than just a drug. We cannot wait until a disease has reached a state to be treated as our only solution to, you know, improving health. We just need this better view of whole body health. And so, you know, the dolphins are this non-biased population where we get to go find out what's helping their whole body and be able to translate over, which has been great. Well, it's no accident that you're, you have the same last names, right? It's, it's, uh, so you're clearly married and what has that been like through this process? What's it done to your relationship? I'm, I'm really curious about this. How have you both grown uh, as a couple? What have you learned about each other? I'd love to, to hear what you guys think. Yeah. Oh, I see you're, <laughs> you're heading to me first. So um, yeah, when, when we first started this, right, with EpiTracker, um, you know, Eric was you know, a practicing physician. I was working at the Navy with the Dolphins. This discovery was made. We both have some pretty heavy entrepreneurial backgrounds. Um, and so we decided, well, let's go ahead and, and get EpiTracker underway and, and, and build this program with, with the Navy in collaboration with the Navy. And so as we started um, building that, uh, we started building a company, but we also started building our relationship, right? So we're husband-wife team. We're also military family. And I think that's played a huge role in the answer to your question because Eric's, you know, went to war. He's been to war multiple times. He was in Afghanistan at the height of the war in the Helmand province. I was at home with a two and a half year old learning how to poop in a, in a bowl. <laughs> so it was like a crazy time. I woke up every morning not knowing if Eric had made it through the night. And so when waiting for that call to hear that he's okay. So when you go through something like that and you survive, you're either stronger for it or too challenged by it. Right, and so as as a couple and as a military family, and for us, um, we were really lucky that we were better for it. So when we went in to start a do the startup, right? This is post war. Um, you know, it, everything's your perspective entirely changes on what's important. Okay, Eric's alive. Check. <laughs> it's like it's like the nobody's dying. If the ups and downs of the challenges of the startup world are nothing compared to military. The military world, um, family and life drives us to um, do work that translates. And if it doesn't translate, 
you drop it, you know, uh, fail quickly, right? And you move on to the next because our goal isn't to let something linger forever. It's to get a you know, meaningful change to the world. Um, so for us, like for, for, it was a hard, um, I think in the beginning we were trying to find what our roles were, but I think it took like what, Eric, like three months <laughs> and we just fell naturally into Eric's a, an amazing, um, master operator. And I'm a, as you can tell, a talk a lot. So that's a CEO's role. Um, and it's it's been incredibly complimentary. And, and Ravi, I wouldn't have done this without him. I mean, Eric's been, it's been such an incredible journey. So much of it is because I, I've gotten to do this with my best friend. So it's, it's been great. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think, you know, you can, there's certain periods in your life where this works. And so you need to have, you know, a background and, and confidence <laughs> <Yeah>. in your ability <laughs> that. Yeah, like that. that. Um, you know, that you need to have a strong base, you know, to be able to do this. And then, you know, it, it helps that our skill sets are, are very different. You know, if, if there's not something getting done, I get very anxious. Like, I got to do it. It's got to happen. And I will find a way to do it. <laughs> and so, and then on stuff, you know, she... You know, she's been on NPR Science Friday twice and J&J &J Innovation and Pfizer and, you know, Behringer Ingelheim and all that kind of stuff. And, and so she's very good at, you know, the translating, you know, the science into something that gets people excited and, um, you know, resonates to the, the layperson. And so, you know, these skills are very different, but both very much needed. So, you know, I, I don't know that we knew that would be the case <laughs> ahead of time, but it's we did we i don't think we ever had to say you do this and i'll do that it was just get it done and we're doing our part of it so that that worked out yeah it's amazing to hear because I, I could definitely see how for in some situations for some couples that could go sideways and go opposite even though i think everyone is more used to working with their partners in more closer proximity given the given the pandemic um you know there's some horror stories that have grown out of that that last year right for sure because sure. I'm glad that didn't, didn't happen. So, yeah. so what do you both do outside of this just to live your life? Like, what do you do for fun? You know, what supplements are you on? What is your regime for staying sane in this crazy world right now? I'm pretty sure we sit here 24 hours a day and work. Yeah, right? you're looking at it. Right? <laughs> 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 this is fun. What are you yeah. talking? It's all, everything. Yeah. We're, you know, we're very fortunate to be in, in San Diego, right? And so, you know, the weather is very nice and we can get outside and do things where, you know, in some parts of the country right now, it's less able to do that. And then the other thing about San Diego is, you know, people are, are generally really nice. Like you can reach out to whoever, even if they're a, you know, prior CEO of a you know, huge company or something like that. And so, you know, it's, it's relatively easier to form, you know, um, positive and lasting relationships here than it may be otherwise. So I think a combination of getting out, uh, you know, um, improving your health and body as in addition to your mind and then social, you know, functions are, are important. And I will say that we are working a lot right now to build this and we could do more of that, but it's nice to have that uh, as well. And we have a 13 year old a keyboard, a bass guitar, and electric guitar. And so, you know, it's a Partridge family situation. So we get to have a lot of fun jamming with our kid. <laughs> what's next? What's next for you both and the company? 
and what do you need to unlock it? Like what yeah. would really help just get you to the next milestone? Right. And so this is a pivotal time, right? So we launched this supplement January 4th. Not too long ago, we sold out in six weeks, you know, without any advertising, just based on people reading the nature paper. And so then we scaled up everything and now we're, you know, we're going to hit 10 tons of production and these are, you know, huge milestones. And so we met financial milestones, we met, you know, all the things we had to do. And so now we've brought on additional investors. And some of those investors, you know, Kim, Camdar Domain, uh, um, Lou, you know, the prior CEO of Coach, Larry, the CEO of the Vitamin Shop, <laughs> Tiffany Soul Cycle, the prior CEO of Amelin, Dan. And so we now have a team in place that has experience in pharma, in food ingredients, and consumer, and have been, you know, responsible for significant generation of large companies and company wealth. And so now we're really revamping things, looking into, okay, how do we create a structure um, to be a, a really, a much larger company? And so we're taking a little time here to put that in place with their input. And so, you know, as Stephanie mentioned, you know, there's more and more articles being published that we're not doing that showing the benefits of this molecule in OCFAs, right? And some of those, like Steph mentioned, was like one was a 16-year longitudinal study saying if you have higher levels of C15, you're less likely to die and have cardiovascular disease, which, you know, we're working on potential claims with the FDA for that. But, but there is so much coming, and that train has left the station. And so it's an incredible time. We're building the base to be able to, you know, deal with that you know, with, with what's happening in the world, um, knowing about this molecule, this ingredient, and wanting it. Yeah, and, and um, you know, really helping to um, drive the story, like, like Eric said, of bringing on more people into, you know, our consortium um, to help turn these calls of action into action. <laughs> so, um, you know, from more of a global perspective of looking at, you know, as the data continue to come out around C15, to be able to change the conversation around saturated fats, and let's get our kids um, back into an ideal health stage <laughs> from day one, or at least age two. Um, and so that all of that's, um, you know, on, on the forefront. On the dolphin side, continuing to um, wonderfully advance the molecules um, that we've discovered. Like we said, just starting to play with the genomic work. Um, super fun um, on that front. So, yeah, Eric calls it a train. I'd say we spent 10 years building a roller coaster. <laughs> and now we're just in it and ready to enjoy the ride. So to come, bring this full circle into your all's backgrounds, I mean, could you have predicted, if I had gone, if I had told the, you know, 10 years ago, even 15 years ago, yeah. both of you, this is what's, what you were going to be working on. What would you have said? Would, would this was this even a was this something that was a glint in your eye back then, or is it like that would have been a complete shock to that to somebody in two thousand five, let's say? Um, to you both, two thousand five. Yeah, no, I never would have played this one out um, predictably. I think I think I could have I could have bought that we would have found a need or and we were working to fill it. So something that generic, but the fact that it'd be a saturated fat come, you know, just had that got discovered while helping Navy dolphins and, you know, is now improving individuals' lives, you know, through our, our customers' testimonials today, which are incredibly touching. Yeah, Robbie, no, I, I don't know, Eric, maybe you had it all written out ahead of time. <laughs> I, you know, background, right, 
medicine, military, orthopedics, aerospace medicine, all that. So I was so on a very different track there. And, um, you know, I had the ability using the GI Bill to, you know, go to Rady, to UCSD program, which I was the first night class. And what a great program, especially for entrepreneurs. Um, and so, you know, that really changed the deployments and having to create medical systems out of nothing, right? Go take care of your Marines and sailors and don't jack it up, you know, and being able to do those entrepreneurial endeavors, plus the MBA program and the excitement around, you know, San Diego and the ecosystem. I mean, that really, that changed my, the direction. Um, and, you know, I, I actually, after, um, you know, the MBA program or during, I actually went back to my mentors in orthopedic surgery, Dr. Call and Delima, and said, we should take some of the technology you're developing because it's so amazing and we should create a company. And mm-hmm. so to make a long story short, we did expand ortho that was acquired. And so I kind of got the taste of that. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, seeing what Stephanie was doing and this program was doing and the amazing discoveries that they were, be- that were being made and the population living 50% longer than those mm-hmm. in the wild. I mean, that was something that I couldn't... Uh, couldn't say no to you know trying to understand and bring some of those discoveries to the world so no i wouldn't have predicted (laughs) i would be you know working with you know dolphin population super healthy dolphin population and working on a supplement food ingredient in pharma but you know it it happened that way and i wouldn't take it back so i'll leave you with a question um which what advice would you give to people who were in your position 15 years ago, or maybe in just, they found something and they just need that push to operationalize it. What advice would you give to, to yeah, young, I, budding I, entrepreneurs? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head earlier when you, we were talking about skeptics. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I mean, the, there's a lot of skeptics out there. <laughs> so, you know, part of the reason that we were able to do this because those skeptics um, were non-believers at first they said you know what what you're you're finding things in this dolphin model that you think have relevance for humans Eh." or you know you think you can manufacture this in 10 ton you know (laughs) capabilities you know those type of things and so they the skeptics you know help you work through the things uh and once you turn them um you know that that says a lot because then they go from skeptic to oh my god you're sitting on something amazing we want to be a part of it and that's how, you know, actually, to be perfectly honest, that's how a lot of our advisors came on board. You know, they, they would say, mm, I don't know, tell me more. It's interesting, but tell me more. And so after that, doing that with every field and, you know, bringing on people that knew more about manufacturing, about, you know, working with supplements and all that, I mean, then you have the ability um, to move forward, you know, and know, hopefully, make less mistakes as you move forward because you've had skeptics dig into this and tell you what all the pitfalls are. Yeah, I just say pitch a thousand times. I know that with each pitch, (laughs) you're going to learn something and be able to answer a question in the next pitch that you couldn't before. And joking about, I think I'm joking about the thousand pitches, but, um, and then, yeah, and seek the, start with, Start with um, friends that'll be brutal, and and work your way up from there. I just, it's I, like Eric said, it's the same. It's the the people who are easily in and say that sounds great. They don't. That doesn't help. Um, you, you need the people. You need to embrace criticism um, and don't take it personally. And if the the criticism is valid, you need to either address it. And if you can't address it with your product, you might need to 
changed your different product. So, um, and then the other is like, you know, like I said, with the science for um, entrepreneurs in the science realm, that if you are seeing something and the science is showing it and you're looking at it in eight different ways and it's telling you that same story, as much as it is the, the whole thing that you know, I've said before, groundbreaking research or groundbreaking discoveries are when you're literally, like you're breaking the ground, the firm ground that everybody has stood upon. So if it's groundbreaking, nobody's going to believe you when you first tell them. Otherwise, it's not really groundbreaking. It's not a discovery. And it's okay. So you need to understand that it takes time and you have to earn the acceptance of that discovery by continuing to science. And if the science shows it, forget what the other people are saying who now at this point don't know nearly as much as you do in this realm and your, you know, and your, your team and just keep forging forward unless the data um, are telling you otherwise. Um, so that, that would be my advice to the, the science entrepreneurs. That, that's, that's the, yeah, that's, that's great advice. And I, I mean, it's, you, you're, you, you both represent the full story from taking something from nanograms to, as you said, tons, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's, uh, well, how can people be involved with you both and the company? I mean, how do people get a hold of you, keep track of what's going on, the new, the, these new exciting announcements, uh, including the very interesting molecules that are coming down the pipeline? How can people help? Yeah, oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah. check out www.fatty15.com <laughs> and so you know, that's where there's a newsletter you know there's a lot of information on there there's the blogs talking about you know what's happening in the world of lipids what's happening in the world of you know treating cardiovascular disease things like that um, and then you know um, reach out to us you know anytime there's an info at fatty15 as well we we try to respond to actually every single person who writes on there. Um, we have a community manager as well, but yeah, I mean, this has been an amazing uh, adventure, and we the more people on this uh, adventure with us, and uh, the more people that are helping to kind of change the, the world's messaging around um, healthy fats, um, the better. Yeah, I mean, we have started a movement, and we're building the community to help enable and improve people's lives, you know, first starting with, with C15 um, and Fatty15. And so like Eric said, we're looking for those megaphones um, in all aspects. Um, so yeah, join the movement, yeah, info at fatty15.com um, uh, and uh, reach out. We, we, we're, building, we're building our crew, so I'd love to hear from, from folks. That sounds amazing, and I would just like to thank you both again for taking the time out of a, obviously a very busy schedule um, uh, for this pipeline of awesome discoveries, uh, and to taking the time to come and, and tell us tell me about it because we'll have to do this again when there's new science and there's new announcements because I'd love to hear this. I mean, so I can go get this now, right? This is you're not having supply chain issues. This isn't being made in Taiwan in a microchip factory. This is. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there it is. Okay. And like you said earlier, it's not, it's not a luxury, it's an investment. It's an investment in, in longevity and health. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. It's, it's, been, it's been awesome.